Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk a little bit about social class, consumerism and values in post-war Britain. If you've been listening recently you'll know that I've talked a lot about this in post-war America and conditions in the two countries are obviously uh, quite different. In America, um, average American citizens in the late 1940s, early 1950s had about twice the disposable income of people in Great Britain. The great consumer boom didn't begin for the British until about 1954, um, and in America it had come at least half a decade earlier, if not, if not more so, from the uh, uh, mid to late 1940s. And this reflects an obvious reality on the outcome of the Second World War for both countries. Uh, Britain, already a debtor country after the First World War, uh, becomes uh, far more indebted after the Second World War. America um, applies to Britain stringent economic um, penalties or stringent economic criteria for in return for granting Britain a loan in 1945, organised by John Maynard Keynes. The British had hoped to have a, a grant, a, a gift of money at the end of the war, uh, wildly uh, optimistic, to be honest, and uh, in the eyes of the Americans, completely uh, unacceptable. Um, the British felt that as they had done some of the fighting on their own from 1939 to uh, 41, uh, that they really deserved a, a kind of a special reward, uh, which unfortunately rather ignored the experience of places like Poland and, and China uh, during the war. Um, so the, uh, the US uh, Congress uh, grants Britain a loan. It is for less than the British had hoped for, and the loan comes with criteria attached. The loan involves, uh, involves full convertibility of the pound by 1947. 
and the pound is converted uh, in 1947 or is allowed to have full convertibility, i.e. you can take as much of it out of the country as you like and convert it into other currencies as quickly as you want, um, it collapses uh, and the, the real age of austerity uh, begins then. Um, however, uh, Britain uh, re emerges from austerity in the early 1950s, and by the early 1960s, Britain, uh, British people, and particularly British working class people, are enjoying a standard of living uh, unparalleled in British history. And now today uh, I'm reading from Seton and Cohen's uh, Power Without Responsibility, which is the, the classic text on uh, understanding uh, British media. I think it must be now in its sort of sixth or seventh printing. Um, but it also is um, a, a journey into British society after the war. And Seton and Cohen write, Post-war affluence was measured in consumer durables. Cars, refrigerators and washing machines made it easy to do what had always been done. Television changed people's social life and habits. Commercial television was believed to alter their aspirations and values as well. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, television was central to a debate about supposed changes in the British class structure. The growth of a mass television audience and the setting up of a commercial service were seen as agents of a revolution that was eroding class distinction and increasing social mobility. Television has more often been seen as a destructive than a creative force. In the 1950s, many regarded it as a threat to traditional ways of life, and hence to the basis of traditional political loyalties. In 1962, the Pilkington Report summed up this debate. The Director General of the BBC, Sir Hugh Carlton Green, later called the report the most important piece of work on the purposes of broadcasting which has appeared in this or any other country. Pilkington attempted to establish the criteria for producing and judging good broadcasting. In fact, the report was very much a product of its time and was constrained by current sociological fashions. So we live in, a, in a, a, a perhaps not roughly comparable, but slightly analogous era, that of the internet and social media, bringing about rapid and unforeseen transformations to uh, the lives of individuals, social groups, um, and the society uh, as a whole. Um, many of these concerns, anxieties and hopes were contained in the birth of television, particularly in Great Britain. The BBC had, um, from the beginnings of its radio days, had always had a rather a patrician attitude towards the working classes, uh, working class audiences. Uh, Lord Reith, the first director general of the BBC, said he intended to give the working man slightly better than he knew that he wanted or slightly, slightly better than he expected. And it was to, um, to educate and to inform, and to some extent, to entertain. In an era of both new technologies and mass democracy, it was thought that uh, methods and techniques were needed in order to shape public thought, uh, and in order to uh, create the kinds of uh, thoughtful, introspective, restrained, democratic citizens who would be adverse to radical change uh, and be immersed in and content with um, the traditional structures of society 
and who would be prudent and restrained in an era of mass consumption and the availability of cheap credit. A lot of the debates around the proliferation of TV uh, in the 1950s and 60s came down to the, the key question of what it meant to be working class. It was feared uh, that television would actually e- erode the working class uh, and that uh, particularly affluence would destroy uh, the working class. Working class life had been centred uh, around um, the uh, trade union, um, the church, the pub, the working men's club and the other institutions of town and city life that held um, working-class societies, working-class communities together. And it was also feared that uh, affluence and television might destroy the Labour movement, or the the Labour Party. In both 1955 and 1959, there were increasing numbers of uh, working-class voters who did not wish to identify as working-class any longer, who saw themselves as having aspirations of home ownership or small business ownership, um, who wanted to embrace some of the new opportunities that the 50s and 60s was bringing them, uh, and saw the Conservative Party as uh, a more natural party of the um, the aspirant working class. This is something that's uh, revived under, under Margaret Thatcher with far greater effect but uh, in the, the 50s and 60s, not only had the Conservative Party essentially uh, agreed from 1947 onwards with the Industrial Manifesto to um, accept uh, the welfare state, a commitment to full employment and broad recognition of union rights, um, but they had also rejected the um, austerity of the, the Labour era. The austerity of the labour era, by and large, was unfortunately un- unavoidable, um, but it continues uh, until uh, 1954, so long into um, the uh, premiership of Anthony Eden, uh, Winston Churchill and Anthony Eden. Uh, and finally, after the 1955 general election, when the Conservatives win uh, again, uh, from 55 to 59, which sees the fall of Eden and the, the rise of Harold Macmillan. This is where you have this uh, generational boom. This is where you have Harold Macmillan saying, essentially, you've never had it so good. As an interesting um, addendum to that quote, in which, and I paraphrase, because I haven't got it right in front of me, he says, um, our people have never had it so good, um, but is this actually good for our people? Um, look it up anyway. So Macmillan, a patrician Tory who had been the MP for Stockton-on-Tees during the 1930s and had uh, served in the trenches during the First World War, was more than aware of the uh, privations that working class people had gone through in the last half century. Um, He, as an aristocrat um, and uh, an Etonian, was um, far from being salt of the earth in any way, shape or form. He was really one of the uh, the last generation of, of great Tory grandees. Um, and everyone who came after him, up to David Cameron, you know, and we're talking Ted Heath, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, 
um, and the various non-entities and minnows that filled in in between while Tony Blair was in power. Um, none of those were members of, uh, of the aristocracy. It is only from 2010 onwards uh, that we've uh, invited the upper classes back to rulers with, as we now see, astonishingly terrible results. But anyway... It was assumed at the time, in the 1950s, that uh, a wealthier working class would simply merge into uh, a larger middle class. Um, and the, uh, or another view was that the working class continued to exist, but uh, prosperity had left it kind of uh, desensitised. Um, mass culture and... Um, convenience and affluence and consumerism had desensitised the working class from its, its own interests. Um, so capitalism had proven to be too uh, attractive. Both of these views uh, were fundamentally flawed. The first view was that simply improving the amount of disposable income or the uh, living standards of a person began to erode class identity. And that's not always the case. Um, there are uh, Social mobility uh, has all sorts of unintended, unexpected and uh, confusing effects on class identity. People moving from being um, working class to living middle class lifestyles don't necessarily uh, abandon working class values. They remember the generation of their parents and the poverty they endured, or some wholeheartedly embrace um, new politics uh, as a result of their, their new class interests. So sometimes um, you see people assimilated into a new social class um, and embrace uh, new political outlooks, such as conservatism, but other times not. The other view that the working class had continued to exist but had become desensitised to the predations of capitalism um, is even more contentious. Um, a working class that was enjoying the fruits of mass culture, was in, enjoying uh, a periodic upswing in, uh, world, in global capitalism, in the, the cycles of global capitalism, uh, and was enjoying really the benefits of having been on the winning side during uh, the war, um, it was, it's not necessarily arguable that that working class would ordinarily have been reading Karl Marx uh, and planning uh, a Bolshevik revolution had the television not come along. One of the things that Marx never really counted for in his writing was the idea that there would be uh, a conservative with a small or a big C working class, that um, the working class didn't simply act as a kind of a, a force of political agency throughout history, uh, inevitably overthrowing capitalism. There are numerous working class people that agree with capitalism and rather like. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Kids. So it's interesting to note that most of these views came from uh, middle-class uh, onlookers. Seton and Cohen write, The first view was particularly popular among uh, right-wing Labour politicians. This is the assimilationist view who use it to justify an attempt to remove socialism from the party's constitution. The steady upgrading of the working class, wrote Anthony Crossland in his book The Future of Socialism, both occupationally and still more in terms of political and social aspirations, renders Labour's one-class image increasingly inappropriate. It was also widely held by social scientists who invented the inelegant term embourgeoisement, to describe the uh, alleged process. As Butler and Rose wrote after the 1959 general election, it is more than ever possible to speak of the Conservatives as the country's usual majority party. The Labour Party has to face the fact that its support is being eroded by the impact of age and social change. Between 1951 and 1958, real, ra- real wages rose by 20%. The proportion of manual workers who owned their own homes rose from 32% to 39% in four years before 1962. Between 1951 and 1964, the number of television sets rose from 1 million to 13 million. Indeed, as televisions were clearly not useful, the widespread ownership of sets merely appeared to confirm what Crossland called the pub's pools and prostitutes view of the working class, which has seen which was seen to waste all its higher income on alcohol, tobacco, gambling and fun, if not actually women. During the same period working class habits also changed. People went went on more holidays, went to the cinema less frequently, began drinking more at home and less at pubs, as these goods and habits had previously been the prerogative of higher social classes it was assumed that their use also entailed middle and upper class values and beliefs, which again was um, a naive misapprehension uh, about the way in which values and beliefs are transmitted and changed. 
It's worth pausing for a moment to consider uh, Anthony Crossland. Um, his book, The Future of Socialism, is perhaps one of the most important uh, books in the history of the British Labour movement. It was the, the book that could be said to have um, inspired many decades down the line Tony Blair and the architects of New Labour. Um, the idea that the old nostrums of class, community, of the working man's club and the trade union, um, that these were not the things that socialism in Britain was built of any longer. It was, in the eyes of its critics and Crossland's critics, the future of socialism was, as Seton and Cohen suggest, about removing socialism from the Labour Party altogether. The Labour Party, since its inception, had been a struggle between um, social democratic forces and those that were really allied to the status quo um, and allied to uh, maintaining um, the uh, system of power in Britain, uh, albeit a slightly more benign one. From the 1950s onwards, and particularly intensely in the 70s and 80s, and now with the, the Labour Party and the Momentum Movement and Jeremy Corbyn, there have been moments of uh, acute confrontation within the party uh, between uh, social democratic and more conservative with a small c forces. Uh, some might argue they're conservative with a big c, they, the uh, critics. Um, and it's fair to say that both Labour and Conservative parties are coalitions in their own right, coalitions of uh, competing ideological forces that uh, periodically these coalitions break down uh, and then uh, various uh, chaotic things emerge as, as we are currently experiencing. The other um, enormously influential book of the early 60s um, that explained uh, the nature of working-class culture was The Uses of Literacy by Richard Hoggett, something I'm currently reading at the moment and hope to talk a bit more in depth about uh, another time. Um, the, this, this second explanation of the decay of, work, um, of Britain's working class, um, uh, that they had been um, distracted by mass consumerism, was based on the observation that many of the, the rituals of working class life were disappearing. And this was in part due to uh, television being a, a kind of a homogenised uh, culture where um, TV shows uh, from America or TV shows about non-working class lifestyles uh, could be watched uh, and the insularity of working class community was slowly being broken down as TV provided a window onto uh, a wider world. Um, Seton and Cohen write, paradoxically, working class culture was celebrated just as it um, seemed to be about to vanish. And obviously, programmes such as Coronation Street, which uh, began in uh, the early 1960s, um, were, was evidence of that. Um, Indeed, its condition was detailed by a generation of academics whose origins uh, were working class, but all of whom had been upwardly mobile. To live a working class life, wrote Richard Hoggett, is to belong to an all-pervading culture, 
one in some ways as formalised and stylized as any that is attributed to the upper classes. And there's perhaps something to be said for that point of view. Um, the working class life that he spoke of then was a working class life where um, class consciousness was um, very pronounced, i.e. knowing uh, what social class one was in and the roles, the limitations of that class, the expectations uh, and how that class uh, functions within society. And one could argue that traditionally Britain's upper classes have functioned in much the same way. The schools and boarding schools that upper class children are sent to really being training schools for uh, class roles, places where you go to meet the right sort of person. So television was able to replace communal forms of leisure and association with a more isolated uh, and standardised entertainment, or so it was thought. However, what emerges in Britain in the television era was a uh, culture based far more around uh, the intimacy of family life, that um, families benefited uh, from television and that television became something that was part of uh, family life and uh, an everyday family experience um, until obviously later on, perhaps the 70s and the 1980s, where families start to have multiple televisions in their home and then cease to watch and experience TV uh, together. The Pilkington Report, when it was produced, um, was really the, the product of um, two anxieties. Um, the uh, loss of the working class, they were being absorbed into the middle class, um, and the decay, decay of working class culture and the role of television uh, in all of this. Uh, Raymond Williams wrote, um, the um, Marxist cultural critic Raymond Williams wrote, uh, from 1956 to 1962 there was an intense development of ideas in the field of culture and communication and by the time of the Pilkington Report this had reached the level of open and conventional politics. So these kinds of things were not simply uh, cultural undercurrents that were being articulated as Williams put, at the level of open and conventional politics, people in the Houses of Commons were saying these things out loud. And the Pilkington Committee that created the Pilkington Report not only created uh, an analysis of British television, but they also created an analysis of British society and culture in the television age, which was no small feat. Television would shape the nation and shape its morality uh, and its mental attitudes, it was uh, thought, and the values of, of society. But what television hasn't done is kill working class culture. Working class people haven't been uh, assimilated into Britain's middle class and working class culture and working class identity, just as middle class identity has changed, um, has transitioned, but it's still a distinctive thing. Um, it, is, it is a distinctive set of values and outlooks and beliefs. Working class people from the 1950s uh, up until the 2010s have become progressively better off. And the uh, way in which working class culture has transitioned has been really based around the development of affluence uh, in uh, mass affluence in British society. 
um, attitudes, uh, middle class and working class attitudes to things like uh, sexual morality, uh, private life, um, and uh, individual uh, pleasures and uh, vices behind closed doors have fundamentally altered. But this has this is more to do with mass affluence uh, than anything else. Seaton and Cohen write, the Pilkington report depended on a sentimentalisation of an earlier golden age, uh, just as Hoggett had before it. Indeed, it demonstrates the puritanical distaste for the effects of improved material conditions. Although its concern with the influence of television on social and cultural behaviour is important, the standards by which it judged the mass media were based on false premises about the nature of working class life. That working class life ceased to be authentic once there was um, a, a greater degree of material uh, abundance, which, you know, is both misleading and kind of patronising by, by term. Anyway, I'm going to finish there. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this found interesting, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Um, if you can uh, donate in some small way to our Patreon fund, that would be great, and it keeps us going, and uh, uh, we can continue creating uh, content for you. Anyway, thanks very much. I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.